welcome back. I am here with Angela Ford, who was a member of the special access program Stargate, except she was part of it in, in a similar, but also a different and more intriguing capacity. So first of all, welcome, Angela. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, when I say there was something different about your participation. First, you weren't a uniformed military officer or enlisted person, but that's not what's interesting. I think what's interesting is you not only did remote viewing, but also brought channeling to bear. So can you first, just for people like me who aren't entirely educated on the topic, can you explain what channeling is from your perspective and then how you got involved in that? Well, channeling, I did automatic writing. There's different types of channeling. I did the automatic writing where you just kind of put your hand on the paper and let the information come through. Trance channeling is whenever an entity will take over a person's body and then they talk in their voice to give information or readings out to people. How I started to do automatic writing was I was around 30 years old. What happened was, was I can remember as a child having out-of-body experiences or high intuition and things happening that were unusual. Now, I talked about it with my mother. My mother was a big Edgar Cayce fan. She always had literature around the house about psychic information. So the year I was out of college, I was unemployed. I didn't have anything to do. So At the local university, there was a man by the name of Dr. Carl Bordas who taught a night class. They're called adult night classes where you pay $35. And he was doing a class on ESP. I didn't have him for chemistry, but from what I heard from his classes is that if the students were getting bored in his class, he would have them write a number down on a card and then he would tell them what the number was. But anyway, he had ESP abilities. So I started to take his night class and I only went for several weeks because I got called for a nighttime job working at a factory. And I had to take the job because I was waiting for my clearances. I applied to the FBI in Washington, D.C. I was living in Western Pennsylvania. So I had to take the job because I needed to make money to move down to Washington, D.C. So I quit the class. Now, I started with the FBI, but because I couldn't be an agent and because they weren't paying much money, I was working with a woman who went over to Army Intelligence. Her husband helped get her a job. And so she went over there to work and she called me and she said, Army Intelligence is having internships for people with political science degrees. You should apply. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got to Army Intelligence. At that time, I went to Army Intelligence probably in 1980, 81. Now, at that time, I did not know it, but there was this small remote viewing group up at Fort Meade, military officers who were doing remote viewing, but it was a special access program. So people that only have a need to know get the access. Mm -hmm. Now, my father had died in 1982. My mother called me one evening. It was around the fall. And she said she and her friends were looking for something different. That She liked to take classes. So I told her to sign up for Dr. Bordas's ESP class. Well, when my mother <coughs> signed up for her class, she had psychometry. Like you could give her like a watch or a ring. And she, mm-hmm. okay, So my mother had these abilities and she was developing it. Well, my father died around 1982. 
And I was having a hard time with his death. And my mother sent me a book and it was called A World Beyond by Ruth Montgomery. And my mother said, read the book. It will help you understand your father's death. Well, she did automatic writing. When I read the book, it resonated with me. So I thought after I read the book, I said, I want to try automatic writing. So I started to do automatic writing. I was living with my sister at the time, and I told her to read the book, and she started to do automatic writing. Well, my sister was taking an astrology class at the time, and there was her astrology teacher knew that we were doing automatic writing. And so she said, go to the Fred Mansbridge Institute in Alexandria, Virginia, He'll teach you, you know, you need to be educated on what you're doing, but he will teach you what to do and how to do it. He'll enlighten you. So I started to take his classes and I didn't realize it, but this would have been around 1983. Now, at the time, what I found out, which I didn't know, so there I was at Army Intelligence, it's about 1980, 81. I found out in early 1984 that Army Intelligence had this remote viewing unit, psychic unit up at Fort Meade, and that they were looking for people who had the talent, and I felt like I had the talent, so, so I was, somebody orchestrated a meeting with the general, and I met with him. He knew I had the abilities. And this is General Stubblebine? Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, what happened, in ni- this was in 1984, and he was retiring. And I think because he lost some support from the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, these the, the military people rotate, and I think he was losing support. So he just said he was going to retire and work on this psychic stuff in the private industry. So I thought, well, there went my chance to belong to the program. Well, it was 1984, and from this is how it worked, and I didn't understand it at the time. But apparently, the people at Fort Meade that were doing remote viewing, there were some civilians, too. They weren't all military. They were waiting around to get new jobs. In other words, if they were closing the program, then the military had to be transferred out. The civilians were had to get new jobs. So they were waiting around to be transferred out to wherever they were supposed to go. Well, in the meantime, you had the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is a whole other agency. It's a civilian agency that supports military. And they call it the sister to the CIA. There was a man there by the name of Dr. Jack Verona. Dale Graff and Jack Verona worked together. Dr. Verona was Dale Graff's boss. And they were sending money to Stanford Research Institute. They were looking at the research and the development of remote viewing. Plus, Dale Graff was looking at what other countries were doing in psychic warfare, mostly looking at the Soviet Union. So Dr. Verona went to Congress and he said, do not shut down that program. He said, transfer it from Army Intelligence to the Defense Intelligence Agency. So it took about a year because in early 1986, I received a call from the program and they interviewed me. Now, when I got there, the secretary took me for lunch the first day and she said, how did you get here? She said, we have names of people on a list who, because it was a special access program, you couldn't go out and just hire people. So what they would do is think whoever had the abilities, come on in, test them a little bit with this. Myers-Briggs test and bring them in. Well, I wasn't on the list. 
and they didn't know me, but they hired me. So general quick stubble question. Line, yes. with the Myers-Briggs test, were they looking for a specific type? Yeah, they felt that people that were more perceptive were more psychic. And actually, that's not true because mm-hmm. it's the people that are more judging actually make the better remote viewers. The, that's how the military tested. But then you had Stanford Research Institute in California. They were testing a whole different way, which was more scientific. Mm-hmm. And in fact, to get their participants, they did a big interview. They traveled to San Francisco and were uh, interviewing hippies from the 1960s. I think they were getting better candidates than just the military. One guy had a neighbor and brought him in. And then we had Paul Smith, who was a Mormon, and he'd go to the Mormon church and he started to bring Mormons in. So I don't think it was a good way to bring it in. But what could I say? Yeah, but it's I, basically in every human organization. It it devolves yeah. to that point where you start bringing in friends and family. Right? And, and it was a small unit and you couldn't talk about it. So one question I want to delve into, because we kind of glanced over it. Can you explain for people who don't know or don't understand, what is automatic writing? How does it work? And then we'll go back into the Stargate. Automatic writing is whenever you write the information. Now, some people feel that you're working through guides or entities. It could be your higher self, but it's receiving the information that way. And actually, it can be very accurate. It gives you more information than accessing and describing a site. It can give you people's names. It can give you locations. At times, it can be very exact. So you just put your pen on the paper and just write. And there's books out on it. There's one book called Introduction to Channeling. And people do channel. I was invited to Russia in 2015. There were some books written by Soviets and U.S. scientists. So they gave us a reception. And I met the the psychics who worked for the Soviet Union before the fall of the Iron Curtain. And we asked them, we said, how did you do your psychic work? And they did channeling. Interesting. Did you get the sense that they're still running a program over there or multiple programs? I I don't know if they are or not. I know the people that we met, they were retired like we were. And I met the man who was in charge of the KGB. I met a healer who traveled with Yeltsin and Gorbachev. I did talk to a woman one time who said she went to Russia to learn remote viewing And she said they weren't really nice people, and she didn't think they were doing it for the government. Now, the Russians that we met who worked for the Soviet Union, they want to work with the United States in remote viewing, and they want to help in terrorism and insurgencies. So I just don't think there's a program going on. I mean, there could be, but I know that the people that I met, well, they're, they're like they're retired. They're not doing it. Right. Right. Okay. All right. So the automatic writing, did you learn that in a class or is that something you figured out yourself? I picked up for myself after I read the book, A World Beyond from Ruth Montgomery that my mother sent me. It's sort of like a mediumship. They call it a mediumship. So when I read the book, I started to do automatic writing, but I didn't know, am I, you know, am I getting information that's right? Is it wrong? I just started doing it. And that's whenever my sister's astrology teacher said, goes to this institute, they will help you. So I developed automatic writing and I started to read tarot cards. And actually I started to do psychic readings before I went to the program. Interesting. So 
the automatic writing, how did you convince yourself that it worked for you? And is it a directed thing? Do you ask yourself a question or do you just sit down and start writing and just kind of take it whatever? Can, it, yeah, you can, it, both, it works both ways. You can sit down and just write or you can ask a question. It can be it both ways. It works both ways. And then for you, you said some people invoke their higher self. Other people work with entities. How does it work for you? Entities. I work with entities. Are they the same ones? Are they pretty um, much the same one? And how are they related to you in in some way? It's just they're just true luck of the draw. I guess the luck of the draw. Okay, but it we'll, helps we'll come when back. I give readings. I mean, have you ever seen people like John Edward or the uh, Long Island Psychic when they give readings? I mean, they tap into people's relatives on the other side. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, there's Matt Frazier, I think, is, is, is one today that seems to be extremely gifted and skilled. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's it's something like that. But you see things that it's not just communicating with non-physical entities on the other side. It's or I guess you can do that, but you, you have, it seems like you had more access to just things in the world, like information in the world that you could pick up. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. So going back to the Stargate program. So you're, you're trying to get an interview at this program. What happens next? Okay. So they, they accept me and the secretary takes me out to lunch and she's like, who are you? We've never heard of you. Your name's on, not on the list. You're nobody's friend. How did you get here? And whenever I said, well, I was with, she goes, well, the gen-, she goes, well, then you got here through General Stubblebine. So I'm sure that General Stubblebine called up the colonel who was in charge down there and say, hire this woman. And they're going to hire me because the general asked them to. Even though he's a retired general at this point. Yeah, he's got friends. He's got friends who can make their lives yeah, very difficult. I got in. So they resented that. Well, and, you know, I worked for the military. I mean, I worked for the military. I think I was at INSCOM nine or 11 years. And I worked in an office and there was one lieutenant and he came in and everybody thought he was so bright and wonderful. Well, they plucked him out of the office to be the general's right hand man. So, I mean, so what? So I was picked to go. And when I went in, I opened up the door and I had one foot in the door and the other foot is still outside on the porch. And I meet the operations officer and he looks at me and he says, I know who you are. I've heard about you and you have a bad habit and you're not going to do that here. We're going to teach you the right way to be psychic or to remote view. Well, prior to going to the office, my management knew that I met with General Stubblebine to try to get into the program, and they were so angry with me because I didn't go through the chain of command that they really made my life miserable. So I knew from where I came from that, you know what, if he said, don't do it, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to get in trouble again. I'm not going to. So I didn't. I really, I just didn't do it there. So they wanted me to do extended remote viewing. The military was doing coordinate remote viewing and extended remote viewing was the first remote viewing methodology that was used in the unit. It was not coordinate remote viewing or CRV. What happened was back in the early days when Dr. Verona and and people would go to Congress to try to get money for the program, it would be laughed at. Oh, there's the site, you know, ha ha psychics. And Congress was putting money in the program and they had questions, how does it work? So Defense Intelligence Agency 
went out to SRI and they contracted them and they said, write me up something on how it works. So there was, Ingo Swan was working for Stanford Research Institute. So management told Ingo, put in some scientific lingo on how this works. So there was a manual called coordinate remote viewing. They call something like you access the signal line. Well, how do you know that signal line isn't an angel? Or you did the coordinate remote viewing manual and you give a coordinate and and it was really nice. So when DIA went to Congress to try to get money, they just passed around this manual and it was more, you know, and it's a mental thing and, you know, it's a mind. They're taking away the, the woo-woo. So they were able to gain money that way. The military people love to train. Other than the FBI, I've worked for military organizations and they love to train. Well, they had this training manual and they kept saying that Ingo wrote this. It's really the ownership of SRI. It's not Ingo's. And -hmm. if you hear it out in the world today, everybody thinks it's Ingo. Ingo did that. And it's not. It's the proprietorship of Ingo Swan, and I think they're calling it controlled remote viewing now because I don't think they were allowed to use coordinate. Re- there had to have been an issue there. Oh, is that why? Because I, I asked that question of, of somebody recently because I keep hearing the two used interchangeably. And I'm like, what, what's the difference here? And, and they, was- didn't, they didn't use that explanation. It was more, well, it's not really coordinate because you're making up numbers now so but it's, it's more controlled say intellectual property proprietorship. it was proprietorship i think sri came back and said stop uh yeah yeah okay so, uh, yeah. your explanation explanation yeah. is fits because they were going out with, yeah. yeah so they so i was told i had a bad habit i got in trouble I mean, I was in a couple of times I'd get in trouble with my, you know. By the way, was that Skip Atwood who told you that? Yeah, By the way, Skip Atwood also said something similar to Lynn Buchanan, except Lynn Buchanan could, could fry communication systems. So he said, well, do yeah. not, don't do that either. Well, the thing is, is Lynn Buchanan and I were the only two people that were ever brought into the program by General Stumblebine. Interesting. Yeah, I think Lynn was in Germany and met with Stubble and and General Stubblebine brought him in based on his abilities. So, yes, and they weren't nice to Lynn either. When I first went in, they kind of. So maybe they did. But anyway, they, you know, they said I had a bad habit not to use it. So I did extended remote viewing. There was a man that came in as a trainer and he was a friend of the boss, Colonel Bill Ray. And this guy was a civilian and he worked in Germany. And if you're a civilian working overseas, you can only work so many years and then you got to come out and find another job. So his time over in Germany was done. And he called Bill Ray and Bill said, well, come on over. We've got a job for you. This guy was never exposed to anything psychic. So he was my trainer. He was very afraid of the automatic writing. And uh, I just didn't do it. Now, the problem with the program was You would think if they were bringing in people that had remote viewing ability, why would they not go out and look for real people that had experiences? They were bringing people in that never had a psychic experience, but they felt they could train them. Yeah, I I can surmise that I spent time in the Army, too. It's the Army institutional culture. We want to train it the way we want to train it. And I imagine underneath that, there's also some fear 
about someone trying to come in and doesn't really have an ability like a shyster, et cetera. And I think that their firm belief was that they, everybody had this ability and they could train people to do it. You could train up to a certain extent. You could train. Right. It's like it's like any step. human ability, right? Yeah. Like you can train but, somebody to play basketball, but if they're not six seven, they're not going to be NBA players, right? Yeah, and I, and also like there was genetic. I mean, genetically, it's in my family. My mother's psychic. My sister was. My two cousins, an aunt, Joe McMonagle had a twin sister. It, it's genetic. There was genetics involved. So that makes sense to me because I'm thinking, why would you not go out? And really, I had exposure to the psychic world, the spiritualism and connecting with people. I mean, there's a whole underground of that. And these people weren't involved in that. So actually, I was the witch. I mean, I really was. To them, I was a witch. And they were going to keep me in line. So I did the extended remote viewing. And then about, oh, and the coordinate remote viewing was everything. About two years later, a year and a half, two years later, there was a change. Skip Atwater retired. They brought in Fern Govan to be the operations officer to replace Skip. Mm-hmm. Bill Ray, I think, either retired or went to another job. So they brought in another colonel that didn't last too long. And by that time, Dr. Verona was tired of all of these colonels being in charge. He just made it a civilian position and gave it to Fern. So Fern was the boss. Ed May had come along from Stanford Research Institute. He had joined Stanford Research Institute. He wasn't wild about the coordinate remote viewing. And Ed May and Fern Govan were of the belief, just let the remote viewer do whatever they need to do to get the information. Yeah, as long as they get results. I don't results. care if you're yeah, like yeah. burning you sage. Asked, like, yeah. <laughs> So you would ask the question like, okay, this is what I found out. They kept making a big, oh, if you're, if you had a personality that you were very perceptive, you're going to make a better remote viewer. Now, this is what we found out. They did a test with airplane pilots. And every time an airline pilot tested perceptive, they would put them in a cockpit. And when the guy went to start the airplane, he read the manual step-by-step on how this airplane works. They would give somebody with more of the judging personality, an airplane pilot, they would put him in the cockpit and let's say start the plane or, you know, work the plane, start the plane. They wouldn't look at the manual and they'd play around and, and they'd figure it out. What they found out, if there were airplane problems or airplane crashes, the people with the judging personality could solve the problem quicker than the perceptive people that read the manual. Mm, Yeah, I'm definitely in the judging side. Yeah. So (laughs) this, yeah. So what Stanford Research Institute said is, you know what? It takes the judging person to figure it out, how it works, and then they'll just skyrocket. Where the perceptive person, they come in and they follow the rules. But that's what I found out. But anyway, so I'm there about a year and a half, two years, management changes. And I said, well, I want to try my automatic writing. And they they said, okay, you can do that. So I started working with Fern. And we started to work Iranian hostages. And we were getting locations. 
we were doing forecasts. They call it prediction looking at forecasts. I think we did a forecast of a United Air flight we felt that was targeted. And actually that matched a lot of information that the analysts were getting in Washington, D.C. And I don't think they did that flight because I had matched what other intelligence sources were reporting. And then I, I did Qaddafi's uh, chemicals. Remember Qaddafi? Back in the eight, 19, late late 1980s, they were worried about Oh, I remember it. Gaddafi all the way to, he was the only guy, the only dictator to say, I'm going to give up my chemicals. And then what did we do to him? Like several years later, we overthrew him. So it's a great message that we sent to Kim Jong-il, right? Or now it's Kim Jong-un, which is basically, if you give up your chemical weapons, the U.S. will overthrow you. So I'm not going to give up my chemical weapons. Huge policy failure. But anyway, sorry about that. But yeah, in 86, I remember Reagan killed members of his family, actually, by bombing his house. I remember the French wouldn't let us fly over. I remember all this stuff, but I was a kid at the time. Oh, I can remember whenever we were dealing with Noriega. I was briefing um, generals at Army Intelligence in the morning on Panama military affairs, and they knew Noriega was a bad guy, but I was briefing generals Friday mornings, Friday afternoon. They were taking air flights down to have dinner with Noriega. I mean, you know, he was our friend, and boy, we turned on him, didn't we? Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. I mean, they were when they went out to get Noriega, we went clear out to get him. And I thought, you know what? He was our, they did the same thing with him. Like These guys couldn't wait to get on the airplane, go get dinner, go have dinner with Noriega in Panama. It's messed up. It's just two-faced. I know. And that, and that is the CIA mentality. And that really has to stop. Newsflash, it's not just a CIA mentality. If you ever work at a high level in an organization, it is the norm. I'm not that way, which has caused problems for me because I just tell you exactly what I think. But anyway, sorry, sorry, we're getting we're getting way off. Well, I, I remember one time taking an analyst class, an intelligence analyst class, and the lady came in and she said, hey, we like information. Whether you're our enemy, whether you're friend, we just want information. You know, you're our friend today, but if we have an enemy, you know, we always tell the FBI, stand back. We have an enemy here, but we want, we, we'll open up the dialogue because we want information from the enemy. And the FBI, they make the arrests. They're more, you know, go by the books. They want to make the arrest that this is the bad person. And in the intelligence community, wait, wait, don't move so fast. We yeah. want to do well, FBI, F- FBI has its own problems. They're always looking to convict. So even yeah, if you're not, even if you're not, you got to be very like. I know, I know people who on the other on the intelligence side who they <laughs> they're not fans. <laughs> they're not fans at all. Oh, I know that because they want to go. They do. That's exactly right. It's in this and same with the secrets. It's too cut black and white. That's like, hold on a minute here. Just hold on. You know, yeah, they're both extremes. Like the CIA will do things that are sometimes illegal, right? Because they get lost in this in exactly what you're talking about, particularly intelligence circles. Sometimes that line between right and wrong is very blurred. Whereas on the FBI side, it's very black and white, but sometimes that lines in the, you know, drawn across the wrong path. Right. Like, you know, we got portals into Twitter and Facebook now, like deciding what's speech and what's not. It's like, no, like that's a clear red line. That's wrong. And you're doing it. Right. What did you do when you were in the military? What did you do? Very little stuff, mostly training. So I was on the op four side at the national training center. 
So I was an expert in Russian military doctrine and tactics. I was assessed as military intelligence, but I was branch detailed armor. So I never did any work in military intelligence. And then they put me on stop loss for a year because I was military intelligence right when we invaded Iraq. And so they made me get a top secret security clearance that I never used. But I went to the Kennedy School and I worked with Dr. Ash Carter and I learned how things worked at the policy level. And by the way, he died several weeks ago and our nation lost a tremendous person because I'll tell you right now, the people in the last two administrations who were running defense, not very bright people. So, you know, it is what it is, but. You did a lot. You had good exposures to things. That was a lot what you did. Very technical. You had to know technical information. Yeah, a little bit, but I, I enjoy doing it, but I'm not using much of that stuff now. I wish I were. I mean, on this show, I am. But yeah, it was a good experience. But more about you, though. <laughs> okay. So anyway, I started. So I was allowed around the 89, I started to do my automatic writing. We were getting phenomenal results. Phenomenal. I mean, I had a lot of misses. It's not 100%. You have to be careful with the tasking that you don't say too much. But the military people did not like it at all. But I did it anyway. They made me mad. They said I had a bad habit. Well, you know. I'm actually surprised with that. That that feels, well, you're, you're also dealing with people who are higher up in an organization where politics is involved. But even today, I've asked the question about whether or not there's still a program. And the answer that I get is tentative. You know, it'll be like, no, but kind of a yes in the background. And it's more the people who actually have to get the thing, things done, who tend to be in the middle and lower levels of organizations, are the ones who, if they have extra money, will pay a remote viewer. But they don't, as long as it's discretionary and they don't really have to. Oh, that's right. That's right. Because their high, hires don't want to, they don't want to hear about it. They don't want to, because they're all concerned with, excuse my language, but bullshit politics. Well, that's what happened. And what others I, think. And I and I only care about and this. I always get into trouble in organizations because I don't give a shit what people think. I just want to get things done. Right. I want to do the, get the, the right answer and do things fairly and be consistent with people. And people like that until that consistency goes against their interest. And then they really hate it. Right. It's like, well, look, well, I'm just a straight shooter. I'm just going to do what the right thing is. So anyway, sorry. <laughs> But when I retired, when they closed down the program in 1995, I went back to headquarters, Defense Intelligence Headquarters in Washington, D.C., and worked as an analyst. People knew what I did. And sometimes they would come whisper in my ear and say, hey, I got a problem. Can you help me out? Well, okay, so I'd do it. Then I got approached by some people. I got approached by a policymaker in the Pentagon. Hey, I think I want to get a program together. Help me get a program together. So, you know, I'd give them information. I worked with two other people at Defense Intelligence Agency. Hey, we want to get a program. We want to get a program. Well, they only wanted to work the operational side, get the people in that have the ability. And then they would just throw questions. Well, there's a protocol you need to follow. You can't tell the psychic anything. Well, they'd get in there and they'd talk too much and tell you this information. They didn't understand that we had a research and development side. And you needed that research and development side because we were under human use guidelines because of what the CIA did with the MKUltra program, meaning lawyers at the Pentagon, we had human use. Like, you cannot do this, this, this to them. 
we had to sign papers. If, if Dr. May wanted to run experiments on our brain, which he did out in New Mexico, he had to go through human use. We were funded by Congress. There was congressional language written for our program. We were funded by Congress. And we looked at foreign assessment. What are the other countries doing? Analysts at, at DIA were tasked. So as far as being, you know, somebody coming up and, not, you know, hitting you on the shoulder and saying, hey, can you do this for me? To me, that's not a program. Now, what happened is, is some of these people, as they were that I was trying to help if you want to get a program. They didn't want to be bothered with the scientific side. Oh, we don't need the science. We want operations. Military, we want operations. But as they were trying to get this program together and bringing it to higher ups, they were being laughed at and they were being blackballed, meaning that they couldn't go any further with it. Well, then they would act like they didn't know me. If I would see them, they would ignore me. So, I mean, that's... And, and I thought, you weasels. I mean, how, what, that's cowardly. Welcome to human organizations at the, yeah, and at I the thought, highest yeah. level. Yeah. yeah, and that's, in the, yeah, and I thought, see, I think at the time that our program existed, we had Dale Graff, Dr. Verona, these people were interested in it. They were interested how it worked. They wanted the research and development, and they were heavy hitters. They were high up. They were strong enough in government circles. They could keep the program. When these people retired, we just lost it. I think when Dr. Verona retired, they brought somebody new in. This guy, he did not want us. We would work operations and he wouldn't even give our information to analysts. He would give it to one man to evaluate. And the man he gave it to didn't know anything. If you're working something in Iraq and he's another type of analyst, what's he going to know about Iraq? It was just, it was, it went downhill. It just got unglued very quickly after we lost our support. I mean, we had one man, he was a general of the Air Force Medical Command up in Fort Detrick, Maryland. And I think he was either a two-star or three-star general, and he was a genetics doctor. And he would put money through the budget to do the research and development of psychic ability. And this man was a genetic doctor. He was interested in genetics. When he retired, mm. he was smart enough to put money in the budget for the next 10 years so that there could be research on the brain, research and development on how ESP works. You had people that had know-how, how to make this work. We had Dr. May when the Iron Curtain fell in 1991. He came to our agency and he said, this is the most open the Soviet Union is going to be. And he said, and you're going to buy me an airline ticket and I'm going to the Soviet Union. He said, I want to meet the scientists who were doing the research on Psy. And he, we did. He went up. He did 22 trips. He met all the scientists. He met the general who was in charge of the remote viewers. He met the remote viewers. They did books. And we got invited in November 2015. They had a reception for us. Yeah, just be careful. And we were fine to go. It was before Trump was president. I mean, we were fine to go. I think we were allowed to stay eight days or maybe we stayed 10 days. But it was fine. I, we knew we were going to. I felt very safe about it. I wouldn't go now. Well, and not, not even just. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, they probably wouldn't let you leave. But also, given the, the climate in this country, 
you would be judged as if you were you had psi back in the back in the day. It would be the same same sort of thing. So not not that Russia is what they're doing is correct, but it's as close to black and white as it gets. But it's not as black and white as the American media makes it out to be. Is the we we were invited, and there were some Russians that came to the United States and became citizens, and Ed worked with those people. So when we went over, it was in 2015. Trump wasn't president. I think Trump may have been running, but he wasn't president. There was no reason to fear anything as far as we were concerned. And Ed had been in touch with those people all along through Skype. They were here in the United States visiting. He was there. He did 22 trips over. So we felt fine. I mean, I felt very, I would not have gone if I didn't feel comfortable. I would not go now. I don't think it's the safest thing to do, or I wouldn't do that now. But at the time, it was a trip of a lifetime. I I just couldn't believe that I met these people that were fascinating. And it, it was so odd because I would stand and we were at the Kremlin and we was meeting with the scientist. And I could see pictures of all like the history of the Soviet Union. And I saw these pictures and they were the pictures of the people that I could see th- through all my over 30 years of working for intelligence. These were the enemies. And I could, you know, and I can remember seeing, and I was always more like a Central American, South American analyst. But I remember, right. you know, the Soviet, I'm like, I remember these people. I remember seeing them, the pictures and the names. It was just odd. You know, they were our enemy for so long. Yeah. And then, yeah, we keep keep putting them in that category, unfortunately. Here's a random question. So are you familiar with who Daz Smith is? Mm-hmm. I, I was so, interviewed twice by Daz. Okay. Actually, he was the one who he's the one who recommended you, actually, when I think about it. So duh. He was trained by somebody named Lee Culver. Do you have any idea who this guy is? No. I thought he was trained by Paul Smith. He he eventually was, but his first foray in remote viewing was this guy, Lee Culver, who claimed to be Army Special Forces, and he's hard to find online. Well, I'll tell you what, though. General, if you ever saw that movie, Men Who Stare at Goats. Yeah, it's a great, great, great CIA propaganda film meant to discredit the program, but in my opinion, I mean, the way it's done. Oh, it's yeah. Oh, we laugh. Oh, I laughed. I mean, a yeah. lot of people say, that's a shame that was done. To... Oh, Ed May and I laughed. We thought it was hilarious. And that was true about Stubblebine. I mean, he would, I mean, he thought he could walk through walls. It was great. But from what I understand, General Stubblebine wanted to know out there who had abilities and what were they doing. And he had this right-hand man, Colonel Alexander, and from what I understand, when General Stubblebine, and he was also a head of TRADOC in Arizona, was the, which is the training headquarters for the mm-hmm. Army. But I think General Stubblebine wanted to know who's out there, who's doing what, and he would tap these individuals. And he could have, that man could have been, Lee could have been involved in the very early, early years of General Stubblebine. And that's because I asked Dale Graff, I said, Dale, how did they, how did they make, the, they made the movie, Dale said they brought two different time periods together. One yeah. was the early years when this one guy wrote a book, and I guess that's, and then they brought in the remote viewing of the later years. But I think when this guy could have been that worked for General Stubblebine on the side. 
like one of the first Earth Battalion types. Yes, that, that's, that's the it. early yeah. days. Yeah, the Earth Battalion. Yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know anything about that. It, it seems that was for my time, and I think yeah. that's the Earth Battalion, and it, it, I think it was prior to the Remote Viewing Group. The Remote Viewing Group was founded in 1976 after somebody found a downed airplane. Then they decided to do a remote viewing group at Fort Meade. But I think that this guy could have been way, way back in the prior to 1976. And he could have been part of that Earth Battalion. And this was and these were the people that Stebblebine was using on the side. Yeah, because he he is like way, way off the radar. Who's he is very oh. hard to find. Yeah. How do you spell the last name? Well, the first name is actually more important because you wouldn't expect it. It's L-E-I-G-H, Lee. And then the last name is Culver, as in like Culver City, C-U-L-V-E-R. Yeah, can, let me ask around. Yeah, because I've seen one picture, and he's not built like a Delta guy. Like a Delta guy would be like 5'9", like very compact, can blend in like a gray man type. This guy's like a big six, two, more like a special forces kind of type stands out. So I don't know if that's a the proper stereotype, but that's based on my research. I think that's probably apt. So do you still use automatic writing today? Do you train it? Do you use it? And how does it supplement? Because you also you also did straight up remote viewing ERV. I did so. extended remote viewing. If like I work when I work for Dr. May, I I do the meditative, you know, you kind of go down in a set in a little trance and you, you sketch or whatever, and then see if your, if your picture or report matches the picture. So I do extended remote viewing. I do psychic readings. Now I use tarot cards. If people want to know about loved ones on the other side, I do automatic writing. Sometimes I do automatic writing for locations to try to find somebody or in fact, I just did two missing children's case. So I use the automatic writing, which sometimes kind of goes into dowsing. So it okay. kind of depends on what the question is. It's like once I, you know, some once somebody asks the question, I just have to know what medium I'm going to use. See, a lot of people think remote viewing is so we get hung up on words. R- remote viewing, the word was made up by two scientists out at Stanford Research Institute, Russell Targ and, and Hal Putoff. That word came about because they were studying ESP. They were studying extrasensory perception. Now, they were studying Chinese children. And when you interpreted from Chinese into English, when the Chinese children were saying, I remotely view or I view remotely. So that's how the word remote viewing came up. So now we have remote viewing. Remote viewing is nothing more than extrasensory perception. Right. When I do, do tarot cards, when I do automatic writing, when I do extended remote viewing, my brain, you if somebody works with ruins, when somebody performs a psychic feat, their brain is working the same way no matter what medium they're using. The information's out there. The brain's doing its thing to collect the information. But your automatic writing, your tarot cards, your coordinate remote viewing, controlled remote viewing, that is the manifestation of the information. But it's here. It's 
from there to here, and then to understand the information, you need the manifestation of it. And those are your different. So to me, there's no difference between a remote viewer and somebody that channels, but to, to the remote viewers, oh no, I'm not a psychic, I'm a remote viewer. The brains work in the same way. I mean, we're no better off than the Romanian gypsies <laughs> walking on the boardwalk in Romania. And people don't want to hear that. No, we're, we're not psychic, we're remote viewers. Well, again, at echelons above reality, when you're trying to get funding from Congress, you need to prevent it or prevent it. And I understand you need to that. It. Yeah, that's that's why. But the people, it, but it, still, people at my level still should know that, hey, come on. So here's how you would present it to Congress now. There are many ways to tap this non-physical availability which taps the collective unconscious and then which interfaces with the subconscious. But they are all similar in that they are merely methods of focusing those energies on providing an answer. And that, that's how you would present it. Right. Now they would come back with, are you talking about talking to demons and meet you're going to, you're going to deal with some bit of the religious right in, in, in some of that. And it's just like, no, they're natural human abilities. Everyone has them. They've just been shunned for whatever reason, either out of fear or they don't technically or nicely fit into a materialist paradigm that we've been focused on for the last hundred years. Yet their effects are undeniable. There is empiricism to support these effects. But it's just sometimes superstitions just don't. They, they don't but, go away. And they're born of fear, right? Well, oh, and, and not only that, but people, if they have a belief system, if they don't believe in what we do, if it goes against their belief system, they're the, if they're not, there's nothing. I think somebody asked me the other day, well, did your good results, you know, because of the good results that that saved the program? It didn't matter if you had good results or bad results. People that were against it were against it. We had people mm -hmm. who thought we were doing the work of the devil. We had people thought that we were doing God's work. And either extreme would drive you crazy. We were better off working with people who were skeptical, neutral, just skeptical people. That's okay if you're skeptical. Let us do our thing. Let's see what we can do. It, those were the best people to work with. But you're fighting against the people who say it's the devil's work. The people who think you're doing God's work will accept, will accept everything and anything. So, yeah. So I think it was better when we, our customers, when they were neutral and say, okay, we'll give it a try, or they weren't extreme either way. It was nice to work with that. But if people, if it goes apart against a person's belief system, it does not matter. They're not going to, they're not going to say, well, gee, it works. I mean, they're not going to do it. They're not going to say yeah. it. They don't want and it. even if you try to break through by, you know, telling them personal aspects about themselves, like, you know. Oh, never. Yeah, you don't go there. You don't that, go that there. would that would likely shut them down even more. Yeah, but, you, you just know. don't go there. Has anybody ever done that to somebody <laughs> just to show them up? No, uh -uh. I, no, uh -uh. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know. Yeah, you never do that. It's bad. All right. Well, I think we're coming up to the top of the hour. So I really appreciate your time, Angela. This has been an absolute blast. And I love learning about all this good stuff. I think you're a good host. You're a good host.
I appreciate that. I had that. a lot of fun. I don't know why I'm laughing so much. I had a lot of fun. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know why, but I, yeah, this was a lot of fun for me. I, All right, we're going to have to do it again for sure. Yeah, I, y- yes. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.